weeks ago, the move to globalize American football was only a dream in four countries outside the U.S. And as the game unfolded in Canada, Spain, and Germany, the fan support was enthusiastic. And here in merry old London, England, where they embraced change about as often as they crowned queens, the World League of American Football rocked the establishment. Today, more than 65,000 will watch the first ever World Bowl between the Barcelona Dragons and the London Monarchs. Stadium in London, England, where World Bowl 91 matches the two teams with the best records in the World League, the Barcelona Dragons and the London Monarchs. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome. I'm Brad Busberger. It's been quite a journey. Started 12 weeks ago for us down in Barcelona, Spain, and here we are. It's been fascinating watching American football being exported so successfully to three countries in Europe, and yes, in Montreal, Canada. The same, obviously, is not true back in the United States, and the league will try to address some of those problems in the offseason. For example, media coverage. Take a look at the USA Today here in Europe. The big banner headline is on the hottest ticket in Europe. And it's been such a pleasure for me to work with this guy. I'll tell you what, through the regular season and the playoffs, he loves his football. Dick Vermeil, great job. I enjoyed every minute of it. And now we come to the most important game. And tell me why the London Monarchs were so dominant in this league. Well, I personally give the credit to the head coach, Larry Cannon. He did a super job of coaching and even a better job of drafting with 15 of his picks, making the all-world team. Then it came to the supplemental draft, and he picks the league's most valuable player, Stan Gelball, a quarterback that clearly dominated that position in the league. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. All right, we will rock you this week for sure. Hi, everybody. My name is indeed Tim Hanlon. How are you doing? It's uh, Good Seats Still Available. Yep, it's our curious little podcast. It's our little excursion that we uh, we try to do each and every week uh, in our journeys into what used to be in professional sports. And uh, we are finally getting into a topic that uh, we've wanted to for some time. And, and we've got a very convenient excuse to do so with our guest this week, Alex Cassidy. Uh, who has the definitive book uh, out there, I think, on one of the teams that comprise this wacky thing, this interesting thing, this very curious football league known as the World League of American Football. Uh, In the uh, 1990s, uh, it was something that was put together by the NFL. It uh, went through a couple of uh, fits and starts. It encompassed some U.S. teams for a little while and uh, certainly a bunch of European teams that then went fully into Europe and called themselves or renamed itself NFL Europe, and that sort of begat something called NFL Europa, and it kind of died, a, 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 you know, with a whimper, uh, you know, about a decade or so later. But it uh, is a great exploration uh, back in the day, well, twenty years ago or so, of of the NFL sort of, uh, I guess, wanderlust about how to somehow expand or or at least export uh, the uh, the quintessentially American sport of what is known elsewhere as American football. 
across the seas, shall we say, into other lands that of uh, beyond that uh, of the United States. Alex has written uh, the definitive book about one of those teams called the London Monarchs. And uh, for you historians out there, the last year of their existence uh, in the latter part of the 90s, they were known as the England monarchs, but we'll get into that. Uh, And the book that uh, Alex has out there, it's called American Football's Forgotten Kings, The Rise and Fall of the London Monarchs. And uh, the clips that you uh, just heard there uh, were from uh, the uh, first ever World Bowl. No, not the World Football League version of the World Bowl. We've talked about that in previous episodes. No, no, this was the first ever World Bowl of the World League of American Football. And um, the uh, the Monarchs uh, were absolutely the kings, no pun, but perhaps a pun, of that league that year uh, in their debut season and in the league's debut season. Uh, that was Brent Musburger, of course, and Dick Vermeil uh, calling all of the action live and exclusive on ABC Sports, who was the, uh, the league's uh, premier national broadcast carrier of games. And uh, you heard sort of uh, some of the little... Uh, uh, interesting tidbits that we'll get into with Alex in just a couple of moments about what was going on at that time. Obviously, London and uh, Barcelona, the Dragons, were kind of the top two teams uh, in the World League of American Football. But if you also remember, uh, if you were a fan of this at all, there were a hefty amount of North American teams as well. Uh, not only that first year in Birmingham, the Fire, uh, the Montreal Machine, the New York, New Jersey Knights playing in the Meadowlands of uh, East Rutherford, New Jersey. Uh, the Orlando Thunder were part of that first season in 91, as were the Sacramento Surge and the San Antonio Riders. And, uh, of course, uh, a couple of the, a bunch of those teams, most of them uh, continued on. There was also the Raleigh-Durham Skyhawks, lest we forget, in 1991. They only lasted one season, uh, and they were replaced by uh, a team for the 1992 season, in addition to all those others returning, called the Ohio Glory. Yes, playing in Ohio Stadium. Uh, the home of Ohio State for many, many years. But as we uh, moved on into the 90s, lots of other teams uh, in Europe as well. Uh, We have teams in Amsterdam and Barcelona and Cologne and Frankfurt and Hamburg and the Rhine Fire and the Scottish Claymores and on and on and on. But, you know, it was the sort of, I would argue, the beginnings of the NFL's uh, look uh, across the globe as to how to export the, uh, the U.S. version of the game of football. Uh, into other lands. And it's frankly something that uh, continues uh, to be pursued uh, to this day. Uh, as you'll hear in our conversation uh, with Alex, you know, a lot of the uh, the origination, the idea, the germ of of the WLAF's uh, existence really came out of a whole bunch of exhibition games uh, that were played prior to that in the uh, 70s and, and certainly in the 1980s. And a lot of those uh, learnings have, uh, uh, you know, continued into today uh, where uh, we've got uh, a handful, at least in the UK and perhaps in other other uh, cities and other countries uh, down the road, uh, actual regular season games being played outside of the United States. Uh, I think Mexico City, which has had a bunch of exhibitions, will probably land one or two of those. Uh, maybe even Toronto, which has been rumored, uh, et cetera. But anyway, this is a fascinating uh, multi-stop journey. Uh, and our first stop in it, uh, we'll be this week with our uh, new pal, Alex Cassidy, uh, as we talk about the London Monarchs and uh, more broadly, the original World League of American football from the early 1990s. Finally, we're getting to it, and uh, we look forward to presenting it to you in uh, mere moments. But before we get there, I think the best way to probably celebrate this episode with Alex is to uh, quickly dial over your uh, little web browser there 
or your mobile device, whatever you're uh, accessing the internet with uh, this moment, and go to 503sports. That's 503-sports.com, and they are our sponsors this week. They call themselves, and rightly so, the king of throwbacks, and and we uh, will prove it to you uh, this week. If you go over to 503-sports.com and make sure that uh, in your back pocket you get that promo code SEATS uh, for 10% of all of your purchases, and you're going to find in the collection section go into we're actually going to the uh, shop by sport section and look under football and you will see an entire trove of shirts and hoodies and actual replica jerseys handcrafted for you from yes the world league of american football you uh, want that hamburg sea devils jersey well they've got it it's great sacramento surge uh do it for you you want the uh, the great colors of uh uh, that sort of aqua blue and yellow, both either in T-shirt form or perhaps uh, uh, a replica jersey, go for it. How about the Orlando Thunder? Probably the most interesting logo and and garish, I guess, colors, but but they'll certainly stand out on the street. That's for sure. Uh, you get they got they're well represented too, and of course the London Monarchs are there. You want the World League uh, uh, emblem uh, in T-shirt form? Of course. Did you go to a Raleigh Durham Skyhawks game once or twice? You'll find stuff there. Uh, it's all there for you. All the teams. Lots of uh, uh, great shirts and caps even. Uh, and of course, those replica jerseys that uh, I'm looking right now, smack dab at the uh, 1991 London Monarchs jersey. Uh, and it's just great. It's uh, it's uh, right down to uh, the exquisite detail. You've got the cool sort of uh, royal uh, sort of uh, uh, garb there, the hat uh, logo in there. It's all terrific. And it's all there for you again at 503 Sports. And that's 503-Sports. Dot com. Don't forget that dash and make sure you use the promo code SEATS to get 10% off all of your purchases, not only in the World League of American football section, but all the other great stuff, uh, football and, and other sports too, uh, at 503 Sports. Once more time, that's 503-sports.com, promo code SEATS, and enjoy 10% off all of your great purchases, uh, including that of the World League of American football Uh, when you do so and use that code. Thanks so much to 503 Sports, and thanks so much to you for giving a listen to this great conversation with Alex Cassidy. And we get into it, the World League of American Football and the London Monarchs. Here we go. Get ready, and please enjoy. It's ironic that we're uh, we're having this conversation because uh, my uh, hometown Chicago Bears are playing the Raiders right now uh, in uh, a brand new stadium in the UK, and uh, that's true, yeah, in London, I think, and um, I think that's a, it's a yeah, an interesting opportunity to kind of go back to a league, frankly, that uh, we haven't had the the opportunity to kind of go into with too much depth. A couple of uh, peripheral references here and there, but uh, came across your book a couple of months ago. And um, it uh, gave me a great excuse to try to figure out a way to to have a chat about the London Monarchs of this thing called the, at least initially, the World League of American Football. But maybe before we get into it, how do you even fancy this topic as something worth uh, uh, going deep on book-wise, uh, you know, for uh, for yourself? Uh, I'm assuming you're a London native. Yeah, I am. I am I'm from London, um, born and raised here. And how I, I guess how I fancied it, that's an interesting way of thinking about it. I, I was too young to experience the monarchs in their actual like time. Uh, when they, they were in they were a team from nineteen ninety one to nineteen ninety eight, I um I was too young to remember that. Um I'm part of like the younger generation of English American football fans who found the sport 
through video games, through the internet, uh, through the Wembley games, um, and didn't really have uh, as much of a kind of direct connection to it as a lot of guys who are slightly older than me that can remember the league and have attended games. So part this is but this is partly why I thought it'd be an interesting book to write because there was such a dearth of coverage and such a lack of understanding that this even happened for guys my age, these kind of generation and younger, um, that there was a professional team in the capital that had, you know, 60,000 fans turning up week in, win out, week in, week out uh, in 91, um, that I just really wanted to make that clear to everybody that this actually happened. Um, so yeah, I, I've, that's the kind of angle I've come at it from. Is it slightly slightly different to a lot of the fans? That's actually pretty pretty interesting, and, and actually it, it dovetails with a lot of other conversations we've had with, uh, say, for example, here, uh, you know, Major League Soccer. You know, our our latest attempt at professional soccer in this country. Uh, we're fans of uh, of current generations of teams, like say the Portland Timbers or the Seattle Sounders, uh, sort of actually scratch the surface and and finally just kind of determined that there was actually a previous incarnation of that team back in the 70s when this thing called the North American Soccer League existed. So it's not too uncommon, but but maybe we can unpack this a little bit. So describe to me then the path to American football interest and or fandom through gaming and, and other other things. I got to think also uh, for you, for you, late night uh, uh, presentations of the NFL in the UK and on television, all that kind of stuff was part of it, but maybe a little bit of a a journey into how you become a fan of this sport, which arguably is uh, not fully entrenched in uh, in Europe, but has had its dalliances. Maybe again, will yeah. So uh, everybody plays Madden. It's a game which is frequently played by you know in university dorms and uh, going around friends' houses. It's it's an established game, and I think in a lot of people's houses in the UK, um, same way same way that FIFA is. Uh, is out in the US. Um, so for me, I I remember there was a particular game, it was like Madden, I think 2005, um, which I was playing, and there was a whole section there about the history of the game, history of the sport. It was like a Hall of Fame section, part of the game, just an, an addition. And I remember just reading for ages all the different profiles of you know, Red Grange, Bronco Nagurski, all the players of, through the uh, dynasties of the 70s and 80s. Um, there was a real, really went into depth in this game about the history of it. And I thought, well, that's why I really like sport. I like hearing about the the heroes, the legends, the the, the people that that made the game what it is today. And I think that the Americans do this in a very uh, very American way, but definitely the, the the best way of sort of entrenching heroes from from past sports uh, and past leagues really really well. So in the UK, we don't do a very good job at uh, you know talking about the stars of the 60s, 70s, and 80s um, in soccer as well as you guys do with the American football franchises. Um, and I've, I've really wanted to basically create a version of that before England's team, uh, the London Monarchs, like actually talking about what it is that they they did, but doing it in this kind of American praising the past way, which we just, we just lack in the UK quite a lot. I think the fact that the 70s and 80s for uh, American football is such a big era uh, Whereas in soccer, it's, it's sort of been forgotten. It's something that I really wanted to try and change. Um, so, yeah, the idea was also, I watched a lot of uh, American football documentaries, uh, America's Game being the biggest one. It was shown on Sky Sports here all the time. And I love the fact that there was an entire hour-long documentary for each championship team. Um, 
the book was trying to create an America's game, but in written form for the London Monarchs as a way for people to realize that this is what, this is the story of the team. Um, that was kind of my initial aim. So let me, let me reframe this a little bit. So your, your, your real introduction to the game, the sport, the, you know, the rules, I guess, of American football was really through the exportation of the EA classic Madden football game. Is that kind of how you, so you almost like you came to it as a, as a mastery or as, as an intrigue playing a video game versus that was your entree to the sport, if you will, of American football. Absolutely. Yeah, completely. Um, it was learning and I had no idea what I was doing for the, <laughs> for the first, you know, hours of which I was playing the game. You know, you just use the, the, the suggested plays, uh, and in fact, this all X's and O's makes it a lot more difficult. But that was how I was introduced to the game was purely from video games. Um, the fact that we, you had the internet at your disposal and it was, you know, NFL.com was burgeoning and you had all this online editorial assisted that, definitely. But if it wasn't for Madden, I wouldn't have had that initial interest around 2004, 2005 when the games really started getting good. Um, it, was that, it was how I was introduced to the sport entirely and kicked off a... You know, love affair with it was last to today, but it was it all started with video games. And all the references then during gameplay kind of just kind of tickled your fancy and like, okay, what are those references and and you know, what do these mean and what are these uh, players and or franchises and team names and cities and all that kind of stuff? It, it just kind of opened a Pandora's box for you, I guess, from a curiosity perspective. Yeah, it really did. And you know, you have to at first they're they're just teams. You know, which have certain ratings that you're playing. And then once you research them a bit more and, you can, and, and Madden's very good at opening up the history of the teams, even through the game, you can play like historical franchises, stuff like that. You could play as the, you know, 1975 Steelers, whatever you want to do. So they're, they're really good at opening that and giving a good introduction to it. Um, but that certainly kicked off my fascination with the sport. And then when you realize that there was a team in your hometown, uh, which no one really talks about, no one's really heard of, um, definitely doesn't exist in a video game. Uh, it it made me realize that this would be a really good story to tell. Um, and I was working at the time uh, for a the only print American football magazine in the country uh, called Gridiron Magazine. This restarted about four years ago. Uh, and so it was an opportunity for me to just write the monarch story and introduce it to the current generation of fans. So I think that's fascinating. So then walk me across your bridge then uh, to the London franchise versus say other, I don't know, uh, Londoners uh, exploration of the sport, right? I mean, you could have, I guess, like maybe a lot of your uh, friends and colleagues could have adopted a team in the U S to follow, not unlike how, you know, U S Euro snobs, if you will, you know, pick their favorite team in the, in the, in the premier league to follow and go to their bars or, you know, to kind of uh, revel in, you know, Arsenal's uh, latest heartbreak or whatever. Right. And or when was your actual first uh, real game that you that you ever took in, professional or otherwise? So I am a Jets fan. Um, so I need to stop right there because that already strains logic as to why you would ever want to become a Jets. Why I choose the Jets? The yeah, I know. To you, as a former New Yorker, right? Let's just—I had to throw that in there. I know it's it's strange. I heard a story about how there's a lot of UK Jets fans, um, but one of the reasons that not like a guy slightly older than me was because there was a television show called Flash Gordon where the the, the titular character was a uh, 
New York Jets quarterback by day and Flash Gordon by night, if I understand it correctly. So a lot of English guys had seen uh, New, York Jets, New York Jets as a team uh, from the television show. So when they first started following the sport, decided they'd follow the Jets because that's a team that they knew from, the, from fiction. Um, but I came at it from the point of I visited New York and my dad, uh, I was with my family and my dad knew that I was a NFL fan. So he bought tickets to uh, the the Jets Dolphins. It was Brett Favre's season uh, there. Um, I think it was 2007 or maybe 2008. Uh, and uh, so it was the first team that I saw live. So it naturally meant that that was going to be a way, the team that I'd follow. Um, yeah, I did get a lot of stick for it, especially from Americans saying of all the teams to choose, you choose that one. Um, but it did, it did. I think a lot of English fans have their own kind of superhero origin story as to why they why they follow their specific team. Um, you know, the team is supposed to choose you. You can't choose the team. You can't just find a list and say, I'm going to follow this one. It's usually, usually it's because they went on holiday somewhere or you know, they, they like the colours, <laughs> whatever it is. They've, they've got a reason as to why they follow a certain team. Uh, you get a lot of... Because uh, when the sport first took off here, it was in the early 80s, uh, when we had three channels... Uh, in, in the UK at that time on terrestrial television. And they introduced a fourth uh, channel, Channel 4, which was uh, showing the NFL. This was in 1983. And so um, it really kicked off that generation. So you get a lot of fans who are Bears fans, Redskins fans, Dolphins fans, by virtue of the fact that those are the most successful teams at the time with superstar players. Um, so there is a kind of a constant pull and push about you know w whether or not UK fans would embrace a London NFL team against the team that they kind of are incumbent with. Um, I think that they would, a lot of fans would actually become dual, dual supporters of both the London team and their original NFL team. Um, I know for, for me it would be uh, tough, but once something's in your hometown, you kind of get more used to it. But yeah, there's there's a lot of interesting stories as to why people support their their teams. And if you if you've been to a London game, you'll see that it's billed as a home a home game for for one side but more often than not it's just a complete patchwork quilt of different nfl jerseys it's every single team's represented there including london monarchs often you'll see some people wearing that jersey and other nfl europe jerseys like it's not really a home game for anybody it's uh it's just a, the fans of the sport um so yeah it's <laughs> jets are still a tough one to follow <laughs> having said all of that well, it's interesting because we, uh, to remind our audience, we are uh, recording this uh, in the middle of uh, actual gameplay right now in uh, in London with the Bears and the uh, and the Raiders. And I actually saw a little bit of the game already, and I did see a fleeting image or two of what I believe was uh, a Monarchs jersey. I don't know from what year uh, and or what uh, sort of mini era, but it's interesting that you sort of bring all of that up. I guess what I would really sort of uh, my last sort of sort of setup question is how then do you sort of fixate on going deep on the monarchs and the world league of American football, especially since you were not around when it was around uh, as your way to kind of maybe scratch that NFL itch, I guess. Yeah. Uh, I was, I mean, I was already working as an NFL journalist for a few years before I decided to do this. Um, I, I was a sports journalist, uh, freelance and working as a sports editor for a local newspaper for a few years. And then I got an opportunity to write for Gridiron magazine. Um, so it was more about genuinely wanting to tell the story of the team 
it, I just felt it was remiss that it hadn't been shared. Um, it hadn't been a, a big enough story. It started out as just a, a blog, just a way for me to practice my writing, just a way to, to you know, write about the NFL, but not just doing match reports and doing player profiles like I was doing for the magazine. It was, it was a way to to try and find a different, interesting subject matter. And then I realised soon that this would work really well as a as a book, as a as a longer form structure, talking about the team um, season by season, uh, just to explain how a team went from being really successful at the beginning, having you know tens and tens of thousands of supporters to bottoming out seven years later and you know struggling to even sell out 5,000 tickets um, I just thought it was a really interesting story about the rise and fall of a team happening in my hometown with a sport that I love that most fans don't really know about um, or at least didn't know enough about so that's why I wanted to scratch that itch yeah, and I guess, frankly, and I don't want to sort of uh, project this on you, but it seems to me that it also is a microcosm of uh, the NFL's uh, attempts, and I would say plural and and still ongoing, right, uh, to broaden the appeal of American football uh, outside that of the United States. I, I, there's, you know, absolutely continued interest in, shall we say, internationalizing the sport. But this was probably the first, I guess, truly concentrated save for a few exhibitions here and there, of an actual sort of, uh, I want to say transplant, but but seedling, I guess, of of competition, uh, of at least some level of, of professionalism uh, with this sort of World League of American football. It's, it, how, do you, how do you go about framing the story? I got to think that the NFL's uh, desire for, you know, uh, shall we say expansion or at least uh, proselytization, I guess, of the American football sport uh, was probably part of your your thesis in, in, in putting it together and and framing maybe the story of not just the team, but like why this team and, and what is this team playing in? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the NFL's always been trying to find a way to make football a 12-month endeavor um, to, to ensure that, you know, that the, the American public will, will love that because they you want as much American football as possible, um, but also it's just good for profits, right? And I think the the internet. What I was told by um, Joe Bailey, who was the longtime Cowboys VP, who then um, who actually helped bring NFL to Wembley when he was with the Dolphins, um, he explained to me that part of the reason why it was they looked for this international strategy was the idea that they could make football a global game. Um, you know, there'd been American football um, exhibition games happening throughout the 20th century, largely because of the American army bases that were based throughout Europe during that time. That's why Germany has such a big following, because there's so many army bases there um, of U.S. players. Um, but really, the fact that the reason why internationalization was included in the World League of American Football was because this was off the back of the USFL and the antitrust lawsuit um, in the late 80s, 1986. So uh, the NFL actually did lose that in the sense they, I mean, if, I think famously the check was for a tiny amount of money um, that they actually had to pay out. But they they were, you know, were guilty of monopolization of the sport. Um, whereas if you have a, if you try and create a spring league, they were at risk of doing the same thing again, of being seen to try and create a monopoly over the sport. But if you put teams in Canada and you put them in Europe, 
it means that you're not creating just a US monopoly. So you're able to spread that out. Um, so that was part of the reason why they included the international uh, element of it. It was a way to ensure that you're not being seen just to violate antitrust laws. Um, at least that's how it was explained to me by Joe Bailey. So it was it was partly because to, to push it out. It was also so they could you know, conquer the domestic market through spring and autumn. So it was a combination of both. Yeah, that's also interesting too. Get juxtaposed with, uh, as you know, you may know or may discovered along the way, things like the USFL in the '80s and the World Football League in the '70s, and a little less the American Football League in the '60s. But all those quote unquote challenger leagues, and some of them, uh, and in, in particular the USFL, seeing spring as a, and frankly, two more leagues, right? One that died this year, it came and went this year. And and more next year again the reboot of the XFL the you know the the idea of spring right uh, as a season to fill in and it's it's interesting the antitrust angle uh, is one that I never really sort of entertained before but that's that's interesting and arguably uh, intriguing given that the NFL had seen numerous outli- outliers trying to kind of fill in that void and here they were trying to do so themselves now yeah that was that was the idea and also as a way to develop players right that's that's you know they they always struggled. With, if you look at the way soccer is built in the UK, it's a pyramid system. You could you can feasibly be promoted from the, the sixth tier of English football all the way to the Premier League in six seasons if you if you had a good enough team. It's it's actually possible to have you know transitions from the bottom all the way to the top. It's it's not like that in the US. Pretty much, it's the it's the NFL. It's a franchise system. Below that, if you don't make it there, you're looking at very scant options as what you could do. Um, trying to in, in, ensure that you're doing something to develop players and have a wider pool base where they can get game time, get real game time, get competitive game time, um, whilst also not clashing with the NFL uh, main season in the autumn, I think was also part of the thinking. Um, this this enabled them to, like later on, they would, they would actually have a, a farming process of sorts, um, sort of like with, with baseball, right? But initially, it's just a two-pronged approach where you can have spring football, you can also expand and push it out into uh, into different markets that you haven't tried yet. Um, and also, as a bonus, you get to develop extra players. So, I mean, the way they formed it, it would be 26 of the 28 teams actually backed the World League of American Football, um, $500,000 each. Um, it was the co- initial commissioners of it were Mike Lynn um, and Tech Schramm. Uh, Mike Lynn ended up taking over for the whole of the year, both long-term NFL GMs with the Vikings and the Cowboys. Um, it was it was backed by the league, but they wanted to also make sure it could negotiate its own TV rights. It, they did that to the tune of $50 million, um, with the USA Today Network domestically, and also they had deals with Channel 4. So there was a it was backed by the NFL. It, it was decided that this would be a, a endeavor they were going to support financially, save two of the teams. So... It, they were they were all in and trying to make it work. Um, it was just about you know seeing what it, what's the best they can get out of this. What what's the return to the NFL owners outside of you know just making a few extra fans across the pond? It, it, I think a lot of them were quite short sighted in how in in anticipating what you see today with the Wembley games and how big a market it is with you know the the internet's just created a death of distance. Right, anyone can follow the sport no matter where they are wasn't the same thing in the early 90s or the late 80s when they were creating this. It wasn't to anticipate that kind of boom in the future and what this would be doing foundation-wise You know, was hard to see. So there were some skeptics about it, but overall they were putting the money in to see if it could work. And what the outcome of that would be, it was hard to tell, but 
there was there was a lot of backing. Well, it's also interesting too, and I'm sure a lot of this is clear in hindsight, right? So it almost feels to me like they were kind of doing a couple of things simultaneously. Number one, I guess, is geography, right? Both internationally as well as domestically, right? And maybe you bring up some reasons as to why the international component, right? But you know, not only to tap into some seemingly well-established interest uh, in these uh, international ports of call, these American bowls that were that were played uh, in London's Wembley and, and other places, shows that the exhibition, if you will, or the not the uh, the attraction of a game, you know, on a professional level, albeit preseason, uh, as a spectacle, very interesting to enough enough people. But I also think too uh, domestically, right in the United States, right, they were filling in. Uh, U.S. Uh, domicile franchises in cities or regions that it had either uh, interest in pro football or uh, had had uh, other challenger league teams like in the USFL or the World Football League uh, that they knew was uh, of interest uh, to a certain level of, of fan in the United States, but wasn't uh, a quote unquote NFL market per se. But I guess my, my sort of big, I guess, uh, uh, spitball to you is is this notion of uh, and maybe this was sort of proven in the, in, in the fel- relatively early days, the level of football, right, in that this wasn't the NFL. This was a uh, modified, ruled uh, version of professional football that wasn't, quote unquote, quite the NFL, right? In some respects, those fans in, in Europe and certainly the United States probably fairly quickly recognized that this wasn't the NFL per se, but a uh, watered down version of it, uh, or did that not matter because it was pro football and and who knows what would come from it down the road? I think certainly to the European fans, you'd anticipate that pro football is pro football, no matter the, the quality which you're used to seeing. Um, it it's still on your doorstep. It's real life. It's there. You know, uh, certainly the early reviews that came out of it were that the, the quality was just nowhere near the power of the NFL, which is expected. You know, they are players who didn't make it in that league. You get some guys who, who might have slipped through the cracks. Absolutely. But overall, the standard of the game is going to be lower. Um, it's interesting that you note about them, you know, trying out markets in the U S to see uh, as like litmus tests, just as a side note, I think, you know, if you look at the, where they put the teams, they put a team in, in um, North Carolina, a few years later, they would actually expand into North Carolina with the Carolina Panthers. Like they were testing these markets as well. Um, they were testing to see if they, if you get a big amount of attendance for what is seen as second tier football, then you know that when you put an NFL franchise there, it's going to really kick off. Um, overall, though, the, the kind of re- reduced quality, I think it was funny enough that the best teams that, that in the first year were all European teams. Um, so, they they had the best players, regardless of, of whether the overall quality was down within within the sphere of the of the league. They had the three best teams. The three the teams with the three best records were uh, London Monarchs, Barcelona Dragons, and Frankfurt Galaxy. So whether or not they overall standard was bad, they a weren't used to that. You know, just seeing it live for the first time, pretty much. This is this is as good as it gets. And uh, they also had the best teams. They're the best players. So it it was a win for the European fans and the European teams. Certainly, the fact that the worst teams were in the, were in America, um, competing against a you know the mindset that this is a that we we used to seeing you know if you you got the New York New Jersey Knights in uh, 1991 in autumn they know that they're going to be able to go and, go and see you know Lawrence Taylor and the Giants right so it's a, it, how do you compete with that when you're just a, 
when your guys haven't made it is it's tougher. Um, and also the novelty element, right? If you're if you're a European fan, this is a huge deal for you. This is this is a American football team, a professional American football team in your hometown. That's also a really big incentive to go and see the games, but also just to disregard whether or not the quality is what you're used to seeing on the highlights that you see every week on TV. This is this is your thing, so you're going to support it regardless. Well, so talk to me about the about the monarchs in the midst of that, right? So you're mentioning the sort of European division as being, and now it's kind of curious or eyebrow raising. You wonder why those European teams was it just fate or, or I'm sorry, well, luck uh, or chance that they were the best ones, or or was there a you know personnel and or you know coaching and and resources kind of uh, uh, play made to kind of sort of cement those as being a little bit more shall we say heavily stocked than say those of the U.S. teams, but but it's described to me London though, because clearly even amongst those three, and obviously proven with uh, the ultimate winning of the first ever championship, right? That it seems like it was quite of a bit of a phenomenon in London, the Monarchs. Yeah, absolutely. It was it really really kicked off. Um, to put it lightly, it was it was a a big marketing push from a number of different um, people involved in the team. You had. Uh, John Smith, who was a football agent who was had previously worked in the U.S. with companies like uh, Budweiser, I believe, um, and had been exposed to the kind of American uh, pompous ceremony that surrounds NFL games. Um, and he had the ear of a lot of the, the press in the U.K. Um, because of his work with soccer. So he was able to really help push out a lot of the marketing of the team, which was a massive help when it first arrived. Uh, it also had deals with Capital FM, a big station in London, which gave away tickets and had uh, the Monarchs fl- news flashes halfway through the broadcast, stuff like that. Um, there was a real big push on the marketing side of things, and it was really sold in as this exciting new sport that you can follow. Uh, and then you had the fact that the, the teams, it, I mean, I don't know if it was it, you know, s- stacked in the favor of European teams. I, I think it was just so happened that they drafted better. Um, I do have a theory that if you're a if you're a guy who's trying to make it in the NFL and you find yourself on a World League American Football squad, uh, it, you you already sort of have to motivate yourself quite a lot. If you're then transplanted to a European country and asked to really prove yourself, I can imagine it's a bit more of a shock to your system, and you really can galvanise yourself to play and try and make it. Um, also, the fact they had these enormous fan bases, really novelty kind of people really looking up to them and saying like, this is a, these guys are American football stars. That's amazing. I'm, I'm from London. Um, it's probably better than if you're just in Sacramento and people just think you're a second rate team, you know, it's, it's, it's just a, a mentality thing, just completely different if you're in Europe versus if you're in, um, just North America, you're just the other guys there. The college star is going to be much bigger than you. Um, not, not, not so in, in Europe. Um, whereas London Monk was actually just, they, the way they drafted teams in the World League of American Football was, was quite unique. They did it over a two-week period in Orlando. Uh, it was position by position, day by day. Um, and they just drafted all the pool of available players, gave them blanket contracts, and they could just pick who they wanted to. And the Monarchs had most certainly the best coach in Larry Kennan, who had previously won Super Bowls um, like it, with his positional uh, work with the Raiders. Um, so he was a awesome coach definitely and he assembled a good team um but just the quality of players they had it was a lot better than everybody else put simply they had 16 players on the all world first or second team 
Uh, Stan Gelbaugh was the offensive MVP and uh, and offensive player of the year. Uh, Danny Lockett was a defensive MVP. Larry Kennan was coach of the year. It was just a stacked team from from the quarterback all the way down to the defensive backs. Uh, so they they just were better. And the fact that the three European teams in that division all were the only ones with winning records uh, is testament to the quality of, of players they had, but also, I think, to the mentality those players had to deal with by being in Europe as opposed to being in um, in the U.S. There was also an effort, though, I think, right, though, to also recruit and or uh, have at least some representation of either local or that is non-American players of some sort in these uh, European teams. Yeah, it was called Operation Discovery, and um, it was done every year. They would always have ways of trying to find these players. London already had a burgeoning domestic American football scene, um, a scene that still goes today, um, with teams like the London Ravens, who were the best uh, domestic franchise here. Um, and it was it was spearheaded by John Ralston, I believe, who went out to different countries, and they held a trial here where anybody could pretty much show up and and try and get on the team. Um, but there were four players on the Monarch squad that year, uh, in the first year, Victor Abubadike, who is uh, now known as Victor X. He's probably the biggest legend of, one of the biggest legends of British American football. Um, I've met him a few times. He was, uh, he's a very interesting man. He's now a uh, full adherent to the Nation of Islam. So he looks very like striking. We see him with his bow tie and, his, uh, his suit when he's walking around London, but he was a phenomenal uh, running back. He was a phenomenal running back for the domestic season, for the domestic teams here in the UK. Uh, he had a uh, stint on the practice squad for the New York Jets in the uh, 1990. Um, didn't make the cut, but still after after that, he was a lock-in to play for the Monarchs. Um, he made the first ever tackle in World League history in the first game because he was the gunner on the, on the kick and just uh, did that. So, he was one of the players who played the entire time of the Monarchs from 91 to 98. And um, we also guys like Trevor Carthy, Nigel Hoyte, and Phil Alexander, who was the kicker. Um, so Phil Alexander and Victor both made it to the all-world team at the end of the season as well. Um, so there, there was a real effort to have British players in the, in the, in the side. And throughout the Monarchs' time, uh, players like Jerry Anderson and later on they had coaches like Tony Allen and... Um, they, they really made an effort to try and ingratiate themselves within, within the domestic leagues, but also using domestic players. All right, a brief pause in the proceedings just for a second uh, to uh, pay a couple of bills. And uh, we appreciate your uh, giving our sponsors uh, some consideration as always and uh, one of our uh, earliest ones that continues to be with us and we love is our friends at audible and uh, audible is as you know the king of audiobooks and if you've never tried an audiobook for yourself well uh, here's a great opportunity to do so and to support the show at the same time uh, and that's when you go to audibletrial.com slash good seats uh, that's the place to go and you're going to get a free audiobook download for yourself to try for free gratis on us uh, you can cancel uh, the Audible service at any time. Uh, and once you do download that book, and if you do decide to cancel it, it's yours to keep. So that's our little free gift. And uh, even if uh, you don't continue uh, with the Audible service going forward, you'll at least get a free audiobook uh, out of the deal. And uh, look, if you consider yourself uh, 
uh, somebody who's interested in sports and sports history and that kind of stuff, like we uh, try to pursue on this little podcast, you're going to find a, a whole bunch of titles in the vast array of, geez, what is it, 190,000 and counting titles to choose from. And uh, in particular, uh, if you like the if you like the hoops, you like the hoops, the basketball. Well, sure, we got a couple of those books, including, of course, probably the quintessential uh, tome, oral history, if you will, of the ABA, the American Basketball Association. That's called Loose Balls, and uh, Terry Pluto is the writer and I believe the narrator of that book as well. Uh, that you could use your credit for that, and it's a it's a wonderful romp that book, and uh, a, a great uh, oral history of uh, perhaps the most uh, colorful. Uh, basketball league of all time, the ABA. Or if you're really interested, let's say in the National Basketball Association's history, uh, you could check out the audiobook from uh, our previous guest, uh, David Surdam, who uh, we uh, had a great chat about, about the uh, history of the NFL. But uh, this book is called The Rise of the National Basketball Association. And David wrote it. It's narrated by uh, Todd, uh, Todd Bars Ness. You say that three times fast. Uh, and a lot of the interesting stuff in this book uh, talks about uh, uh, the NBA in the context of uh, congressional hearings around antitrust and that kind of stuff around the 40s and 1950s. Fascinating stuff. And you could use your credit for that book, too. Among, like I said, 190 plus thousand other titles to choose from at Audible. And again, it's audibletrial.com slash goodseats. And uh, you're going to get, again, your free audiobook download courtesy of us. You can cancel at any time. It is yours to keep. And we appreciate you giving them a try. And uh, we certainly appreciate you uh, rejoining our conversation right now. So, I mean, how does the fan base in London, like, how is, how is the team marketed? I mean, obviously doing well on the field and, and, you know, in the playoffs and ultimately winning the World Bowl certainly doesn't hurt. But I got to think that this was um, also an exercise in marketing, right? Because you're not only selling, you know, the team, the winning ways and, and, and but also that of, quote unquote, American football, the sort of spectacle, right, which had been present for years prior in these American Bowl exhibitions. I'm just I'm just wondering, say, why Wembley and why and how it gets marketed say, against Premier League matches, which I think is probably overlapping in, in a part of the season, right? Yeah, so I think it's it's interesting in the sense of the, the Premier League wasn't even uh, in existence at the at that time. You're still looking at the at the, the first division or, or the, the old style of, 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 of system of soccer in the UK. Um, I think that the, the marketing of, of the Premier League certainly was inspired a lot by, by the US style, um, of marketing, it, it became that took off for a, for a number of different reasons, but um, and probably the Premier League taking off as to what it is today, from the early '90s, from where it was in the '80s, which was not not in the same position, definitely hurt the overall chances of American football succeeding in London um, for a while. But that's a, that's a separate point. Um, in terms of how it was marketed, it was just a party atmosphere. It was the main thing they were going for, you know, fireworks, mascots, everything kicking off at halftime during the game, having a, they, they did give away a lot of tickets. That was one of their styles, trying to get people in the door to expose people to the sport, to make sure that the atmosphere was big. Um, this was something when I spoke to uh, John Cook, who was a super fan of the Monarchs, who spoke to him for my book, he explained that you, you could kind of get away with never buying a ticket for the games in the first two seasons. Um, it was possible with all the different giveaways they were doing in uh, magazines, uh, on radio, 
that you, you could just get away with never having to buy a ticket. Not good if you're trying to actually have the long-term uh, kind of success of a team. Um, it's good. What you have to do initially to try and get people in there. But if, if you rely on that as your model, it, it's not good for kind of, uh, it's not a good foundation. Um, but overall, it was just a big push to get the monarchs out there. They had uh, cheerleaders doing uh, signings and getting involved on the, um, with like in shops with the shirt sales. Uh, you had guys going, um, <clears throat> you had uh, guys meeting up with football players like Tottenham, uh, just for photo opportunities. It was it was a big push just to try and get it into the consciousness of the UK that there is a professional American football team here, um, and it's sticking around. That was the that was the the main thing was just about awareness. And uh, I know that John Smith was a big part of that in terms of getting placements in newspapers and things like that. Um, I think they tried to sign Ellery Hanley, who was one of the best rugby league players in the country at the time. It was just a marketing an exercise in marketing. Uh, it was not actually going to really happen, but you know, doing things like that, stunt marketing, was just was just a way to get it out there to make it clear that this exists. Well, in in the monarchs case, it sounds you know, I, and I can just I can I cringe at some of these sort of American type of uh, pyrotechnics and uh, and other other sort of promotional allures, and and the ticket giveaway thing, right, is uh, you know, is a hallmark of, of of lots of challenger leagues in 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 the past, and it's you know the. When people you condition people to get things for free, you know they're not necessarily going to be willing to pay for a ticket when it matters. But it also seems to me that you almost had a, a almost kismet like uh, confluence of a positivity the ninety one inaugural season in London, right? Uh, some of the things we've mentioned already that play on the field, of course, as well, plus all that sort of promotional oomph. But nineteen ninety two, it was almost seems like to be a diametrically opposite. You know, a, a terrible season thereafter, not so great. Yeah, absolutely, and. Um- you know, you speak about 1991 being this kind of heady, heady season. It really was. They, you know, they, they even released a, a single, Yogo Monarchs, which is, again, like a, like a kind of very 90s elastic style rap, um, which is worth listening to on YouTube if you get a chance. But the in 1992, it did tail off. And there was a number of reasons for this. Um, I think that it's the, the, the league lost $5 million in its first season, um, and American ratings were low overall. Uh, the fact that the best teams were in the were in Europe did mean that the, the American fan bases suffered in terms of the quality they were getting. Um, so there was a bit of a bit of worry about that. Um, and then they had a the way that they'd done the contract system in 1991. There was a stipulation in the contracts that said that you had to be back in 1992 unless you were on an NFL roster uh, in February of that year. So. Anyone who got a two-year contract after their their uh, season uh, in the World League would would not have to return. But if you didn't, uh, then you'd have to be back in '92. That was part of the contract. Um, but the problem was is that if you played a season in spring and then a season in autumn, and then you come back in the spring, you're going to be pretty knackered. It's tough to really have a you know to, to perform in that sense. Um, so, and there was also a, a weird stipulation where if you were signed after uh, January 15 uh, for the first season of the World League, then in order for a NFL team to sign you, they had to pay, buy out your contract, but buy it out for double. So Stan Gelbel, for example, he earned um, around $90,000 in the first season because of all of his performance incentives, um, which was a big part of the contracts they had. Of course, he was the MVP and because he had uh, all-world season. 
Um, so in order for him to be able to play in the NFL in autumn, they had to buy out his contract for 180 grand, um, which was just not going to happen. It was it was a kind of a tough thing for these players because they had been sold the dream of the World League as a way to make your way into the NFL. And a lot of them found that it was really difficult to either get out of the contract or even you know to actually play effectively. So this meant that you lost a lot of players going into the 1992 season. Um, they lost their entire receiving core. Um, they still kept Stan Gilbore, but he was absolutely exhausted from uh, playing half a season with the Phoenix Cardinals. Um, and overall, we're just it was just a bit of a, a, dour, a dour feeling. Larry Kennan had also left to take a head coaching job because um, a lot of them weren't even sure if the league was going to keep going that year. They'd lost money. There was talks about not putting the season on entirely. So, uh, yeah, it was a, definitely a different mindset um, and one which affected the performance on the field, without a doubt. Maybe you can kind of hint at sort of what those first two seasons were like generally, right, uh, through the lens of, of the Monarchs, right? Because, you know, with some great fanfare that first year, right, but you're mentioning it didn't really take that quickly or that that um, yeah, league-wide, right? I mean, I think with the pockets of Europe and, and you know, showing some some signs of, of sustainability, right? But 90, 92, that second season, seems like it really, uh, I don't want to hasten its demise, but obviously after that second season, the NFL seriously rethinks what this whole enterprise is all about. I, I guess what I'm trying to sort of grapple with is how does that, you know, how does that manifest with, with being a fan, let's say, of of the monarchs and in London, right? Because interestingly, when uh, the league does get reconstituted as uh, an all-European world league a couple of years, two seasons afterwards, London's right back there in the mix, right? Um, Albeit maybe in a a smaller or lesser grand form. I mean, it's got to say something to at least the first two years of London's existence in this league as evidence of why it's a great market and or the possibilities for the future of American football in London and uh, uh, in the region. Yeah, I think London is is the is always going to be the, a very accessible place for uh, Americans to go to. Right, it's the, the language barrier for a start. Is 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 the is why it will always it was seen as like the the jewel in the crown of of the league in that sense. Um, it just makes it easier to head up your operations there for a number of different reasons. But, you know, the NFL was, was, UK was based there. That was where they ran the league. Um, overall, the attendance was still good. They were still giving away tickets, which was part of the problem. Um, but the attendance was still very good and the, the fanfare was still there. Uh, they just won a championship, uh, but people were still behind the team. Uh, it didn't perform on the pitch, but overall, the the support was there, so you're still going to use it as a flagship franchise for your league as a way to 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 push it in the second year. Um, obviously, they shut down the World League for two years, like you say, and that definitely hurt the fans' feelings and hurt the chances of, of London surviving in the long term. <clears throat> I spoke to to John, um, the super fan, about this. He was saying. They'd all they got ready every season between 1992 and 1995 for the Monarchs' return. They'd printed stickers, they'd printed posters. They were ready for them, for them to come back, but they didn't just kept on delaying it, delaying it until 95 when they announced it. 
a lot of guys had lost interest. A lot of people had lost interest um, in the sport. It was a very 80s thing in the in the mind of a lot of people. It was a it was big in the 80s at NFL. You know, Channel Four had three million people watching the Super Bowl in in 1986, and by the time the early 90s came around, they were getting about 500,000 people watching it. Um, the interest had waned. Premier League was taking off. Uh, it was seen as a very passe thing, slightly. So they still. So in 1995, when they brought the team back, you know, it, it that's when it really lost its shine. If you compare that to 92, it was it was you know, a lot of people had just forgotten about about the team. A lot of people had forgotten about the sport. Uh, a lot of people were, were into different things, and they being at Wembley is is the Wembley is the place to be, right? It's the it's the national stadium. It's it's famous around the world. If you that was a big part of, of why the monarchs could be was so you know such a big deal in the country. They were playing at the national stadium. Take that away, like in 1995, they moved to White Hart Lane. You know, actually Tottenham's ground where the the, the, the Bears and the Raiders are playing right now. Um, but then it was not that it was not the stadium that it is today. Um, today they've got a modern an uh, American football pitch that comes out the bottom of the grass. Back then the 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 pitch was only ninety three yards long, so they had to get a special exception to even play there. Uh, I remember Brad Johnson was telling me that he fell out of the end zone on a five yard drop <laughs> uh, during one play, like it was just not designed for the sport. They had to have both teams on the same sideline. Um, stuff like that that just is slightly a lack of professionalism a lack of quality which you had those first two years even in 92 when the team was bad you still had the overall structure the overall class the overall you know you were Wembley you were it was it was the team still 95 it becomes a lot more of an afterthought it becomes a lot more of a kind of well we have to have a team in London because we need it for XYZ reasons but it's it's no longer the the, the same kind of Jewel than it was in those first two years. So, uh, in your investigation, what, what were the sense of the of the players? Uh, did you get any any sense of sort of the, their adventures playing in Europe, either as part of the original league with which had U.S. teams, or in the successor generations, including NFL Europa? You know, obviously it's it's second tier. Obviously, it's it's developmental. It's it's clearly trying to extend one's playing career or rehab it or uh, get to the the top tier, not on like, say, a minor league uh, or lower league kind of thing in, in other sports. Uh, but I also got to think that some of this was a bit of, I don't know, adventure, right? Because they're basically being played American football in a uh, quote unquote foreign country or set of uh, set of countries that, uh, you know, maybe has a, a, a tad bit of of just fun and, uh, uh, you know, just uniqueness to it because they're doing it not, say, in, you know, toiling away, say, in indoor arena leagues or elsewhere in the United States. Oh, absolutely. Every every player I spoke to, all near, nearly unanimously, was saying how much they loved the fact that they could travel around when they, you, know, you, you, you get to play American football professionally, which you've been unable to do in your own country, and you're given a chance to do it. But not only that, you also get to go to half a dozen different European cities. You get to be real, you know, focus of attention when you're there because of how unusual it all is. You're, you know, Americans out in these European cities, all these young guys. It was, it was a, a good time from what a lot of them were saying. They absolutely loved it. And they, and really there was a, a Michael Titley, who was a, uh, a 
tight end for the Monarchs for four years, four seasons, said that he just used it as a way to see Europe. He, he was based in London. He could go to any different European capital he wanted to really easily, you know, during, like during the off season, if he wanted to, or while he's, while he's playing, it was, it was an amazing opportunity for these guys. And you, you did get a mix of guys who were, um, you know, former pro bowl, all pro players who are trying to just keep making it. We get Gaston Green, who was a all pro pro bowl player for the Raiders in 91, played for the Monarchs in 97, alongside, uh, guys who are just being placed there by their team as a way to get some good game film under their belt, like Brad Johnson, who uh, later won a Super Bowl with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in 2002. He volunteered to go to London so that he could get an opportunity to play, just so he could impress you know, the coaches back in the US. They, there was a mix of, of, of reasons to why guys are doing this, but overall the opportunities and the, the fun they had doing it, I think, was came across massively when I spoke to them they they all loved it uh it was a it was definitely like I think some guys struggle with uh with the food that was a, that was one that came up a lot uh I think that we're, we're not known in the UK for being uh great <laughs> great cooks I think uh but the that was that was a big problem uh the bed sizes and a lot of the places they stayed for their for their training camps the offensive linemen had to sleep on the floor with mattresses because they would just break the bed frames because <laughs> they were staying at um, a place that used to be an all boys school uh, in, um, in Bushy Park. So there was those problems. And I think definitely the homesickness, right? For like, you know, if you're, if you're married um, and you've got a family back home, it's tough to be in a completely different country. It's would be a lot easier nowadays with, with the communication that's available, but it was, it was tougher back then. So, there were lots of negatives to it and um, certainly maybe it was just the fact that the luxury of the people that I interviewed for the book had very positive things to say. Uh, I guess you're more likely to want to talk about it if you had a good time rather than the guys who maybe declined interviews might, might have been able to say something different. Um, but overall, the, the opportunity that came along and the way that this, this if, you, if you like traveling and you like playing American football and you really want to keep making money doing it, it's, it's a perfect opportunity for you really. Yeah, I mean, it's also a fun way to sort of keep keep at it, right? Because you know, obviously the eyes of the prize, right? You want to get to that top tier, which is, you know, uh, you want to extend your career. And, and, and it's interesting, it's interesting crossroads, too. You got people who are sort of, quote unquote, on their way down or trying to sort of hang on and maybe make that one last uh, shot at the, at the top tier. And you've got obviously plenty more who want to sort of ascend, you know, from maybe not making it the first or second time out of college into, uh, into the top tier. I am fascinated by... Uh, the, I don't want to say the, the, the demise or the slow demise, but, you know, you mentioned the White Hart Lane uh, uh, field being only 93 yards long and then the accommodations uh, having to be made for that. But I, even even after that, they moved to uh, Stanford Bridge, I guess, the, the, the last of their of the official World League of American football branded seasons in 97 as well. I, I'm just curious, as, some of it was was what? Just the lack of, and again, we're talking about the 1990s, right? So that's a whole generation removed, I guess, of today's modern, maybe almost multi-sport expectant, you know, uh, structures. Uh, but why the subpar uh, uh, surroundings of White Hart Lane and or the move to Stanford Bridge, were these top uh, soccer teams not uh, excited about possibly renting out their stadiums as well? Or was it just simply latching onto anything that they could find or I, 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 that whole situation seems curious to me as to why 
sort of uh, uh, the, the movement around. And frankly, maybe even in their last season as the England Monarchs, right, which meant that they had to go from they were not only in London for a bunch of games, but also elsewhere, you know, across the country. Yeah, you can see as the the attendances went down, which was a big part of it, the stadiums got worse. And, it, you know, it could whether it's a chicken or an egg situation. But I remember speaking to fans and they were saying when in 1990, uh, in 1995, when they went to White Hart Lane and they announced the attendance, everyone was shocked at how low it was compared to what they were used to um, in Wembley. So it it was, it definitely removed some of it. Like there's a the number of reasons why White Hart Lane is not as good as Wembley, especially the old White Hart Lane is, you know, just getting there is more difficult. You know, the parking was more of a nightmare. Overall, it's just less less of a kind of uh, a big deal to be in those stadiums. Um, and the reason why they moved to Stamford Bridge from White Hart Lane um, was because of a disagreement with Jerry Francis, the then manager of Tottenham, about the state of the pitch. And it's funny today uh, seeing Tottenham fans talking about the uh, the fact that there's NFL again in their stadium. A lot of them reminiscing about how much it affected the pitch that they were playing on uh, in the, it, during those seasons because it was running simultaneously with the with the uh, Premier League at that point. So, you know, and the fact that even they weren't even happy about the fact that you could see the NFL logo, uh, or the, the um, London Monarchs logo and the World League logos on the pitch uh, during the, the league games. You know, it was a lot of kind of not enjoying they had to rent out their stadium. Uh, so they moved to Stamford Bridge and then played at Stamford Bridge and then the 1998 season when they rebranded to be the England Monarchs was was kind of a, uh, a Hail Mary in, in seeing whether or not there could be interest in other parts of the country. So they played, of the five home games, they played three in London and they played two in different parts of the UK. They played um, one game in Bristol, which is about 130 miles west of London, and uh, a game in Birmingham, which is about the same but uh, north Um as ways to see if maybe these would be the places where they could generate interest. It didn't work. The crowds were still very low and they were playing at worse and worse stadiums. Honestly, if you see, when you see pictures of, of, of what it looks like to see those final games compared to what it was in 1991, it looks like it's just, it, you wouldn't think it would be the same league, let alone the same, the same team. Um, it was a massive difference. And overall, it's just, it's indicative of the decrease in support you see the decreasing quality of the stadium happening along the, at the same time. Well, it seems that, you know, uh, with the demise of uh, the England version uh, in 97, it seemed that the NFL kind of uh, kind of gave up on uh, that format. I mean, they rebranded that next year, right? Sans, a team in London, right? So as NFL Europe, right, became much more of a, I guess, a, a more concentrated and uh, a, a little bit more, I guess, uh, uh professionally uh, sort of, you know, run kind of kind of deal. Uh, I think it uh, became a bit more of, of more of a feeder system and, and, and maybe a bit more pronounced in terms of its. But I, I can't imagine, though, that it seems to me like there's there was a hearty bunch. And look, again, having seen some bits and pieces of today's game as we're recording this, right, uh, there still is a bit of, uh, of nostalgia for for this team and, and maybe as a flicker of hope or interest. That perhaps a, another team could uh, could domicile in London, uh, especially if the NFL, uh, which seems to be more you know newly interested, I guess, or aggressive in looking at international markets such as say in Toronto, in Canada, and certainly in Mexico City, Mexico, you got to think London is in in the top 
handful of of, uh, of markets in Europe, uh, if not the top one, right? For for you know a, a rethink or whenever expansion or whatever comes again. I think if you look at the way that they moved the focus of NFL Europe from 1998 to uh, 2007, it became very German centric, which is um, which was where all the attendance was. I, I think Germany is often overlooked as being as being somewhere where they could play international games, and I think they would sell them out so quickly. It would be, and you know, you, you get there's a lot of Americans still in Germany, right? It's, there's uh, towns which are in Germany, which are nearly entirely American, big towns. Um, but there's also a really real interest in the sport there. I think by the end of NFL Europe, uh, nearly all the teams except for Amsterdam were um, were German teams. So it, that's, I think, London's definitely, we've got a base here. Since, And that's why I'm, I'm very hesitant to there being an NFL franchise here because I don't think the NFL wants to do it, really. Because if you look at the success that they've had since 2007 with selling out the the 20 odd games i think it's now been with the multiple per year that there's there's been over the last decade and a, and a half like it's there's no need to put a team here <laughs> they're making enough money with merchandise sales enough money with the ticket sales uh, it they've they've now got a slate of you know nearly a whole home season here i don't see why they would want to take the leap and try and create all of the structural problems that come with putting a permanent franchise here. Uh, personally, I couldn't, I, I couldn't see why they do that. When, when, you've, when you're making enough money and you're having enough success as you are with the current system, and they've seen that they've tried to do it before, and yes, it's a completely different era. It's, it, it's, it's, you can't really compare you know, 1991 to 2019. I just don't see why they would, would do it. It doesn't. Would, if the conservative decision would be just to keep doing what you're doing until you have to do something else, and you know, right now the sellouts that they're getting with placing NFL franchises here is enough. Um, so, but definitely, I think Germany is is a place they should be. They will be looking at putting an international game there, um, and you'll see how how much that will sell out. But that was always, I think, the approach that they realised that's where the money could be made in NFL Europe, and uh, you know. Germany will always be a popular NFL hub, definitely. Yeah, so that that's an interesting uh, uh, thought, right? Because in essence, you're you're talking about regular season games that have uh, a part of uh, of the standings and, and and mean something that are essentially being placed outside of either either team's market and you know is not sort of a watered down second tier kind of league. Or uh, a glorified exhibition, right? So that's a pretty interesting theory, and it actually is very interesting too, because that that mimics or almost uh, mirrors uh, some of the uh, the dynamics that we're seeing, say in uh, in world football, right? With uh, say the La Liga, right? Uh, tr- thinking about or controversially trying to put uh, a, a Spanish Cup game or even a regular season game. Uh, I guess the latest uh, thought was having it in Miami or whatever. Uh, the Mexican League, right, has plays a ton of, uh, you know, uh, games uh, of uh, interest in the United States. You know, I think it's, it's very interesting to see how uh, other leagues, especially those in, well, the NBA, right, uh, a couple of games exhibition, uh, albeit in uh, in India, uh, this last week or two, right. So, uh, it's very interesting. I guess it, it, this is a very curious microcosm of maybe what can and can't be done or or should be pursued, right? The idea of how much of these efforts 
to transplant a game uh, in foreign lands uh, requires a full-fledged sort of circuit, uh, you know, a league, so to speak, versus uh, maybe just expanding or augmenting the, the more episodic spectacle, I guess, approach. Uh, maybe extending into a regular season or, or that kind of stuff. I, yeah, and we see it here in the United States too, with you know the European games that keep coming during the summertime, which are just glorified exhibitions. Uh, there's a real pushback now. I think the fans in the United States are getting much more sophisticated. And Major League Soccer is clearly not that of the Premier League or or the Bundesliga or, or whatever, right? There's a whole raft of reasons as to why that is. But the uh, assumption that you know all these big uh, uh, Champions League teams coming in and playing in August, which are basically, you know, is Superstar X going to play in these games and charging an exorbitant amount? You know, fans know, right? They they, they recognize. And for some, it's great because they can wear their jerseys finally to a game. But then they also feel cheated because they're paying a, a ton of money for not a regular season or, or real game. And I got to think that some of that is sort of the reverse effect in, in, in Europe as the NFL stumbles through what it's going to do or not in, in on the continent. Oh, definitely. I think the, the uh, NFL was kind of, I think, was slower to it than, well, not slower to it, but definitely slower to it than the NBA and MLB were in sort of doing these international games. Um, NHL is an international league, right? And you know, in a sense, it has Canada anyway. But it was, it was still a like a big push for the NFL to do it. It's because there's only 16 games on the schedule, right? So you know, it was a, it's a huge deal to give up one of those games for, from a home perspective. And the NBA, this it's not as big a deal. Same in the MLB. Um, I do think it's it's interesting about there's always talk about uh, the Premier League will they ever take the leap to put an actual proper home game who would give that up and whether that would happen or not uh, to, to play in the States I would be flabbergasted if that happens in the next full stop to be honest with you I really couldn't see it happening I think the fans would, would be in uproar I know that a lot of NFL fans are, aren't happy when they lose home games but I, I couldn't really imagine it happening in the Prem. And I know that they talked about having the Community Shield. Uh, not sure if that's actually happened, but having the Community Shield as being a game, which is at least a cup game, which could be given to the US fans uh, as a way. It's still obviously not as big a deal as being able to see a, an actual league game. Uh, and it's the, the when you have these international sports, when you have these sports being transposed internationally, it always fascinates me. I'm a rugby fan as well, and they had the All Blacks versus Ireland in Chicago. Uh, last year, it was a brilliant game that Ireland won. Um, it's just it's it's very hard to to use a single game as evidence for success over the over you know a longer term if you put a franchise here. Uh, I think we've had there's a lot of uh, evidence of success of the NFL playing in London over the last decade enough that you could easily make the case that you could put a team here. The question is is if that team is really bad. <laughs> And loses all of his games. You've got that. You've got that problem. You've also got the problem of uh, free agency. Is you know as much about the city and the and the country as it is uh, about the team. Uh, we we see that in lots of sports in America, but it definitely is a bigger draw if you're in LA versus uh, Green Bay, right? Uh, Aaron Rodgers makes a difference, but overall, you know, cold weather is a thing. Uh, so imagine going to London. That's a whole a whole thing. Uh, and I think also. Uh, the fact that English fans do have already have teams mean that you're going to get a bit of a spotty home fan base. It's not going to be guaranteed that everybody in that stadium is going to want the London Monarchs 2.0 to win. It's just, it's just not. Um, I mean, I, I think I would actually end up becoming a full-on fan of the team 
given given enough time and given a superstar player, right? That's that's a big part of it. Um, but it's tough. Like you might see guys who are drafted full on revolt whether whether or not they would want to go to that team. Like we, that, I mean, that happens within the US as it is with teams. Let alone if they really didn't want to go to London. Um, I'm not sure if um, you know how many NFL players would even have passports if it wasn't for the fact that they have to go to London for some games. So there's a lot of things considered from a human element, from the players and fans, as much as it's a business decision. Uh, that is a business decision, and I think you could justify that with numbers, but then you've got to factor in all those other elements, which uh, don't make it easy. All right, two last questions, then I'll let you promote. What about the sport itself, right? So the fact that NFL Europe, you know, kind of came and went and had a bunch of different iterations and, and maybe the London slash England Monarchs as a microcosm of even that. How much do you think, based on what you looked back uh, into and, and how you came into the games, interestingly, through gaming itself, how much of it do you think is a rejection or a relative looking askance, I guess, at this at the, at the, the play of the game itself? Right, Because it's not free-flowing. It's very start and stop. Uh, you could make the argument, especially if you have grown up in more of a you know, Eurocentric or, or world kind of view of sports like, say, soccer or rugby, right, which are a little bit more free or flowing and less maybe contrived and, and, and all these timeouts and artificial, you know, starts and stops and that kind of stuff. How much do you think is sort of embedded in that? And or is it just too American, if you will, and not sort of a world, you know, uh, uh, loved and or perfected like soccer is, which is a universal sport literally all around the world? Definitely, I think the American football was initially seen as a kind of a way for the. It was shown on the alternative television channel in the eighties, the the one that was for the MTV generation. It was it was seen as a great thing to be interested in because it's alternative, it's cool, it's different, it's American, yeah, it, and, that, and that was the very eighties perception that you know the British people had was that this is a a cool thing. Right. This is this is American. It's different. It's cool. I'm going to be interested in this. The 90s, I think you get, you know, we were more the cool Britannia nation pushing out the culture in the opposite direction. Um, and now I think people are just interested in. In something different, definitely. I think that the it's a spectacle of the sport is still a big deal. I do often um, I think modern fans are English fans are different to. American fans in a number of directions. You guys tend to be sports fans, right? If you're from Boston, you're going to be a fan of the Bruins. You're going to be a fan of the Celtics. You're going to be a fan of the Patriots. Um, you're going to be a fan of the Red Sox. That's that's who you are as a, a Bostonian. In the UK, we you don't have that. You, you're a fan of usually just a sport. You're not a fan of all the different cities, teams within all the different sports that we have. You're usually a fan of England in everything, right? Because we have a lot of international exporting, like with uh, football, definitely. Um, but if you're a football fan, you're not necessarily a rugby fan. The same way that you get in the States, which, uh, you know, you get a bit more of an osmosis of just you, you support the, the town's teams, regardless of the sports. Um, so that has always meant that we're not necessarily dual sports fans. You're going to be a football fan. You're going to be a rugby fan. It, typically, that can happen. Like I think nowadays, it's a bit different. I think that with the internet, you've allowed allowed ourselves to open ourselves up to different sports. And uh, the UK, NFL UK focuses a lot of its marketing on tapping into football fans uh, with the NFL. I think that from my experience, a lot more rugby fans and NFL as a crossover. Um, I don't think it matters particularly that the games are very stop-start. Red Zone has definitely helped that. 
like personally, I much prefer to watch Red Zone than I would to watch a specific game unless I'm following the Jets or it's a big spectacle, you know. And I think that lends itself a lot more to the UK mindset of how we consume uh, our sports. Uh, it's a lot more free-flowing. You don't have to wait through uh, adverts, which can drive us a bit mad. Um, so I do think that there's, there's some fundamental psychological differences in how we support teams within our different countries, um, which has hindered slightly the progress of supporting two sports at the same time. Uh, but now I do think that's changing. I do think that people are starting to embrace being dual fans of sports. Um, you know, I, I also played American football when I was at university, which if I say that I'm a college American football player and I was American, that would be like a very impressive thing. But <laughs> here it's, it's any, anyone can do that. <laughs> it's, it's very amateur. Um, and there's real burgeoning communities of American football fans, not just at the top level of the Wembley games, but also at the, all of the, you know, the British American football league teams, the domestic teams, the British university American football teams, um, and all the different, you know, youth setups that we have. It's, it's, you know, improving. It's becoming a lot more of a, a normal thing to do. Um, and, and the fact that I think that's just about it, time. It's been, it's been around now for 12 years. People are used to Oxford street being emblazoned in all the different, NFL logos and there being a big crowd there. They're used to the Wembley games. Most people, if they have a slight interest in sports, will have probably gone to a Wembley game just to see, you know, just like for me, I have six mates who've come with me to a few uh, Wembley games. They're not NFL fans, but they're sports fans. And so I convinced them to come along and they had a good time. Um, but, you know, it's still it's progress to be made in, in entrenching it. Definitely. All right. My last question in your work, uh, what of uh, the uniforms and the logo and that kind of stuff? I I I think uh, some of those uh, uh, garish and or maybe you know cutting edge uniforms and and logos and and uh, the 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 shape of uh, of you know how to sort of market a team. I think I was pretty interesting. It kind of it, it certainly was not sort of the staid uh, traditional kind of uh, logo like uh, approach that uh, you'd see with American teams. I, I think some of some of those designs and stuff were were pretty cutting edge for for its time too. Yeah, I, I love sports logos and franchise logos. It's like a like a thing I like to look at, especially defunct sports teams. Like I love that. Um, the actual design of all of the nineteen ninety one teams was it was quite an interesting story. It was it was done by one man. Um, he he was just tasked with designing all of the different teams. Uh, I really want to try and remember his name because uh, it was Dave Boss. So he was. Uh, the VP of special projects for NFL properties. And he just literally him and his team designed all of the teams for the 1991 season in one go. Um, and I think they're pretty great actually. And some of the, I think the surges uniform and the thunders uniform got a lot of stick for their, for their choice of very neon type colors. <laughs> Definitely. Um, but I think the, the Monarchs logo, the Monarchs uniforms, some of my favorite, I, I own a few jerseys, um, and that and the Barcelona Dragons, I think, are just absolutely class designs of both like jersey and logo. Um, I would love if they kept the, the kept them for anything that does happen. If they do have a team in the future, I think it should be kept with the same logo and same design. And um, because I don't know, the, the, the more modern uh, logos that you get for, for NFL franchises tend to be a bit. I don't know how to describe them. A bit more cartoony and a bit more geared towards you know the like making the logo look exactly whatever the team name is. Like if it, if they would design the London Monarchs logo now, we'd have like a, we'd have a, a literal king of some sort being, you know, the 
like in the logo design as opposed to just the classic M looking like a crown, which for me is, is I think is brilliant and, you know, more subtle, more, more classic. Um, but now, now I think you're probably like uh, kind of over the top King design um, or something like that. Um, but no, I think, I think that this is interesting to, that trying to create an entire league's logos and designs and try and keep them uniform across that was a, was a very hard task. And um, I'll try and share it on my Twitter. There's a really good interview through one of the programs I've got from the early 90s. Um, so that's how I had to do a lot of the research. Uh, with Dave Boss, where he explains his design process of how he creates all the different logos for the team, for the teams. Uh, I think some some guys, I think definitely followers of this podcast who are, who are very interested in the kind of uh, personalities and profiles of, of these teams that used to exist um, and how they came about would, would probably really enjoy reading that. Um, but no, it's uh, I was personally a fan of them. I know some of them get some stick though. Well, no, I, that's an interesting story. I didn't realize all of that backstory. That's 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 fascinating. And and it, yeah, it is a bit of a, a, a tangent of, uh, of interest of ours too, because I, I think, you know, obviously this is different in this case, but, you know, we look back at leagues in the 80s and the 70s and and prior, a lot of those uh, uh, team names, as well as the logos and the the color schemes and all that kind of stuff, you know, they were done basically by, you know, work for higher graphic designers. And and some of those, sadly, especially in the U.S., a lot of those uh, uh, logos and trademarks and stuff have fallen uh, into public domain and uh, you know, I would uh, royalties, you know, who knows, right, what, but uh, what could have come, but but that work, you know, does get, uh, you know, kind of uh, stolen, if you will, by, you know, modern day profiteers and T-shirt makers and all that kind of stuff. And and in some respects, you almost kind of wish and hope that some of these uh, original creators would get some kind of uh, at least recognition, if not uh, some financial uh, uh, benefit from from these things that, frankly, to your point, do last on beyond the teams themselves and do have a life and a history that that go on and and sometimes in in cases uh for profit that uh, maybe they don't get the benefit from. So that's that's an interesting story. I didn't realize all that was centrally, but it stands to reason, right? This was an outgrowth of the NFL to start with. Yeah, and I think that it was it was sensible to do it that way. Um because it, it, you know, if you if you rely on the team, nowadays they wouldn't do it that way. I don't think I imagine the XFL was probably like then they recently have been announcing those teams, right? I don't think they've announced all of the team names yet. Um, all the logos, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's what I've seen. I think that when they announce them, you're going to find that they will probably have some kind of uniform look. Um, but I don't know. I just, I just struggle with the modern logos compared to the old ones. I think that's just me. Um, but they, they, the way that they designed that unilaterally with just one, with just one man, uh, one man and his team, of course, designing all the different logos in 1991, I thought, I think really is a reason why those logos particularly, and those designs of the teams have stood out so well, uh, even you know, 28 years onward. Um, some of them are still really, you know, really nice and would work now. Like the Barcelona Dragons logo would, would definitely hold up today, um, and I think the Monarchs logo too. Like you know, the NFL logos, which are so um, of the current NFL teams, some of them haven't changed since the teams were created. And yet there's this, I don't know, there's a big desire to try and have a modernized logo. It's like, there's absolutely no need. <laughs> you just keep it how it is or, or maybe just ask a designer that worked on something 25 years ago as opposed to a designer nowadays. Um, I don't know, they, getting those kind of things to stand the test of time, I think you need to uh, look backwards rather than look currently. Maybe that's just me though.
You know, I honestly don't know what uh, is more eyebrow raising in the in that conversation. Uh, that uh, Alex was introduced to the sport of American football through a video game for a, uh, all intents and purposes through Madden, which is a pretty amazing sort of a juxtaposition, I guess. Uh, not not really sort of seeing the games first and then playing the game, but vice versa. Uh, that to me is fascinating and maybe a sign of just how old I'm becoming. Uh, or I, maybe it's also similarly fascinating that he's a Jets fan of all the teams in the league <laughs> that follow in the in the uh, NFL. It, it, he'd pick the Jets, and uh, you know our condolences. Uh, not not uh, not off to a great start this year for sure. But uh, we uh, we thank Alex, and of course that uh, book. Uh, that's it, it's a hoot. You you got to read it. It's fantastic, uh, and it's it's a wonderful uh, uh, synopsis, and frankly a, a nice uh, uh, you know microcosm of the World League. Uh, in those first couple of years, in particular, the, uh, the the first year, the 1991 season, where the Monarchs won it all, uh, as you heard in that initial clip, the World Bowl, the whole bit. Uh, and the book is called American Football's Forgotten Kings, The Rise and Fall of the London Monarchs. And again, Alex Cassidy is the author. You can find it wherever good books are sold. Uh, it is published by Pitch Publishing. And of course, you will find a link to it and all the other great books and media and things that we uh we uh, feature with our guests, et cetera, uh, from all of our past episodes at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Just search up this episode. I think it's, oh my God, 134, uh, our episode with Alex uh, Cassidy, uh, London Monarchs, and uh, you will uh, find a convenient link uh, to Amazon and a couple of other places. Uh, purchase the book there, and you'll give us a few uh, pennies and nickels of love by uh, doing so. And uh, Alex, I'm sure, will be. Uh, enormously uh, grateful for uh, continuing this, uh, the legacy of this book and uh, the stories behind it that uh, hopefully we kind of surfaced a few of those for you this week. And uh, we also encourage you to tool around on our website. Uh, again, at goodseatsillavailable.com. Make sure you check out all the old episodes. If you haven't subscribed already, well, what's stopping you? Just find your favorite podcast player and click subscribe. Not too difficult now, is it? Uh, lots of great old episodes and probably a team or a league or or some kind of topic that uh, is probably interesting to you. And if you, you haven't heard of those old episodes, by all means, take a, take a deep dive, why don't you, and, and see what you might uh, enjoy there. Uh, of course, you can also find our social media feeds there. Of course, uh, you can find us on Twitter at Good Seats Still. You'll find us at uh, the Instagram uh, experience at Good Seats Still Available. Of course, you'll find us on Facebook. You can send us email if you'd like at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Uh, you can also sign up for our email newsletter. Find out what we're going to talk about each week, a couple of days ahead of time, uh, before the, uh, you know, the hoi polloi. Uh, you'll find a link to that on our website as well. Just click around, you'll find that there. And uh, what else? Oh, my God, please, if you, if you wouldn't mind, uh, you know, Apple Podcasts or wherever, frankly, you can rate and review uh, podcasts. By all means, please, uh, if you can take a minute or two out of your busy day and uh, give us a nice review, why don't you? We'll take the critical ones, too. You know, we're not perfect. We uh, we certainly understand that uh, we're not the most uh, professionally polished, but you can hear the enthusiasm in our voice, can't you? At least give us some credit for that. Uh, and we'd uh, certainly appreciate that. And that, of course, helps other people like you or maybe some some crazy folks that are not like you to discover this little podcast and uh, tell their friends and so on and so on. So we appreciate in advance your rankings and reviews and, of course, all the great folks who've done so so far. Uh, we can't thank you enough for that, too. One last thanks, of course, before we run. Let's all say it together, shall we? Thank you to Jerry Payne, the good doctor, and our friends at Podfly Productions. He is uh, essential and crucial for getting all of our uh, 
our assets and our uh, recordings and all kinds of things to stitch it together, make it sound like a damn show. A pretty darn good one once in a while. Uh, we do our best and we thank him for polishing it up as he does each and every week with uh, aplomb. Uh, Jerry Payne and friends at Podfly Productions. Find out more about them at podfly.net. All right, we're done this week. Uh, We thank you for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Until then, the ticket window is now closed. And now we leave you with, of course, uh, we wouldn't leave you hanging, but we know the theme song. Yes, of course, the official theme song of those London Monarchs, the world champion, world bowl champion, 1991 style of the World League of America football, London Monarchs. And uh, you go, you monarchs. Take care. Ring a ring of roses, a pocket full of poses. Monarchs, monarchs, we all fall down. To confuse us with anyone else We gon' roar, let's hit to the best We're the London Monarchs and we're taking care of business
fulfill that dream. With the crown jewels and a rocket.